0: To the Psych Central Podcast, where each episode features guest experts discussing psychology and mental health in everyday, plain language. Here's your host, Gay Howard.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. Before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, better help online therapy where you can get one week of free convenient affordable private online counseling anytime anywhere just by visiting betterhelp.com psych central they help keep the show free so please check them out and speaking of shows calling in today we have oparo rice the ceo of tanager place of cedar rapids iowa oparo welcome
2: hey thanks gabe it's great to be with you today
1: well, we're really glad to discuss children and mental illness, children and mental health. Nobody wants to talk about children. I mean, people just aren't talking about mental illness at all, and, and children are vulnerable. So I really appreciate all you do and in, in being willing to have this discussion. The first question that I want to ask you is, what is Tanager Place?
2: Well, yeah, we're in East Central Iowa pretty much, and we're a behavioral health organization, and and we serve about 5,000 kids a year. We have a a large outpatient mental health clinic, inpatient services, in-home services. We also do a great deal of training on trauma and resilience. We host a symposium every year. And really, you know, our mission is to inspire, empower, and heal. That's really the three things that we are trying to do with kids in our state. The other thing, though, that I'm really involved in is a lot of advocacy, both on the state level, the national level, I'm also involved in some international work as well. And so this discussion around children's mental health and what is proper mental health for children has been something I've been you know, working with really intensively the last few years. I think it's a conversation that's finally starting to kind of hit the national uh, media. I think people are starting to pay a little bit more attention. I think even when you look at what's happening right now at the border and what's happening with those kids, people are talking about the trauma. I've in somebody was up talking about the trauma those kids are facing. And I said, oh, okay we're finally starting to get it as a country. So it is a good conversation to have And, and because really it's about where are we going to put resources for the future? So it's not cliche when we say kids are our future. That is literally the truth, but it's a hard thing to do.
1: One of the things that I think that's interesting is is you're saying that trauma is part of mental health and it's bad mental health a lot of people when they think of mental health and you know unfortunately we use that word wrong all the time you know he has mental health yeah everybody has mental health they're really speaking of mental illness but when we're speaking of negative mental health you see the trauma scale as being very valuable Uh, can you explain that a little bit because so many people don't see trauma as mental illness or mental health at all
2: yeah, because I think that what we're trying to do, I think what has happened in movies and other things, I think people have had this vision of what is somebody who is mentally ill and then what is somebody who is struggling with their mental health? What is somebody who is struggling with mental health challenges? And what we have learned and what we really know is that all of us at some point have had some type of mental health challenge, right? And some of us have had different resilience factors and different interventions that have helped us over those humps. And I think that, that we are starting to to know more and at least speak to it. And I think that people are like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to go get some help. Or, you know, man, maybe our child is looking a little bit more sad than I, than I remember or they're not talking as much. Maybe we should get some consultation. I think that what we've known, the discussion around trauma and ACEs, the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences survey that the Kaiser Permanente had done, had really kind of pushed across the nation and people started to think like, God, how many, what were those things that kids have been exposed to that could affect their physical outcomes later in life? And that's where the discussion has changed over the last few years. People are making a connection of these traumatic events and they don't have to be you witness the shooting. They could be things like people hollering in your house or bullying situations that happen in school or divorce. It could be a multitude of things that are traumatic to a child, so there's no one like you know major traumatic event it could be small little things that add up but erode the child's sense of self over the years and so what are those things that help the child build themselves back up? what are those things that helps the child feel strong? what are those supports that the community has to to, to foster those resilience factors in children? that's what we're talking more about. That's the part that's exciting. We kind of know this that that really deteriorates a child's resilience factors what we have to do is invest in the things that actually help build those resilience factors.
1: And when it comes to children, they're vulnerable for a couple of reasons. One, they're children, but two, they're completely dependent on the adults who are around them. For example, if, if I feel that I am in harm's way as an adult, I am empowered to do something about it. But children don't have that. They're stuck with whomever their parents are, and that can be positive, uh, but it can also be very negative.
2: You know, absolutely. I mean, but but when you think about it, all children have to go to school, right? So we know and we we as a country know where our kids are going to be mainly, especially during the the school months. We have to build on supports there. We can't. Parents are doing the best job they can. Some parents are better than other parents, right, depending on how you look at what what parenting is. Some days I have two sons. I feel like I'm a really good parent. And some days I feel like, boy, I'm really struggling. I didn't handle that situation well. So parents are under also a tremendous amount of pressure. And I think when we look at the complex issues of our society, all those things factor in. However, parents still need backup, right? You know, we need to make sure that our school systems and that are also a trauma-informed, resilience-focused solutions focused to help kids who may be struggling. And what we find is that more and more resources have been pulled out of schools for mental health and for positive mental health than, than has been in, year, in years past, Is everybody's trying to do the best they can with the budgets they have. We also need to make sure there are enough community support. I grew up in Chicago, and I remember spending my summers basically almost unsupervised, you know, on the streets of Chicago running with my friends. You know, there were no community centers. There were no real uh, organized activities in my neighborhood. And so how can we invest in our communities, especially our communities that are more at risk and we know that there are higher traumatic events and lower socioeconomic status to make sure that those kids are still getting positive influences, that we're still intervening you know, in a positive way, preventing kids from having further mental health crises later on in life and also strengthening their resilience. There are a lot of things that we have to do as a community. And it's not, and again, I don't mean to be cliche, but we have to look at it as a whole village. Um, and that we have to care about what's happening with well, all kids, regardless of who lives in my neighborhood or who doesn't live in my neighborhood. These are things that we need to have.
1: It's an interesting concept that you raise, Apara, that there are things that we can do to give kids a, a better chance and improve their mental health that children won't even see as, as preventative medicine, for for lack of a better word. You take a child to a doctor and you give them a physical or you give them vaccines, the, the child knows that it's preventative medicine. But having structured activities, having supervision, getting them involved, Involved in sports, theater, music, or things like this, it, it improves their mental health. And I would say that the average child is, is completely unaware that this is improving their mental health.
2: Absolutely. They're building blocks of life. Is that this is what we know kids need. This is what kids know. It's that holistic view of a child. And we also have to, and you said it, we have to care as much about their mental health as we do their physical health. That is as crucial. I, I said something controversial at a, at a meeting I was in maybe a year ago, right after the Parkland shooting, and that tragedy of that, that young man and all those children that died. But this is also a child who committed this act was this was a young man who had gone through therapy and had been in therapy. And so therapy is not a magic bullet. Medication is not a magic bullet. And sometimes I think what gets portrayed is that these things are like so magical. No, it's a journey. It's a journey that we need to start as early as possible for children and to make sure we're intervening as early as we possibly can and hopefully preventing tragedies like that. But there are many, many children who struggle with mental health issues who never become violent. There are many people who have struggled with mental health issues as children who have grown up to be very successful adults. What it is is that you find those things that help center you. You find those things that help you recover when you have crises. You find those supportive adults, those supportive community around you. It helps you when you're having some of those low points. The use of psychopharmacology has also been something that uh, we have gotten much better at at knowing the, the types of medications that might help a child and when children shouldn't be on medication. As a field, we have gotten much more sophisticated. We tend not to focus on the positive things that are happening too. And the many, many programs around the country that are doing positive things, that for whatever reason, the things that always hit the paper or things we always hear the most about are the negative things that are happening. That's something that I think is really, really unfortunate. And we have got to have portrayals out there of people who are getting healthy. It's okay to have setbacks. It's okay to have challenges. We all have that. And that's the part we have to realize. None of us have gone through life without having some type of mental health challenge or issues of low self-esteem, or issues of depression, or issues of self-doubt or doubt about the world. You know, these are things that we just have to come to acknowledge. And I think that helps reduce the stigma in a lot of ways, because you know what? It can be any one of us. I mean, each of us is such different, unique creatures. We all have different resilience factors. We all have different lives that we've lived. And then that journey has taught us how to deal with different stresses. And so I am very much glass-half-full about this, because I think that there are so many amazing people out there trying to do work with the kids that it that it does my heart well. And I know at Tanger Place that's one of the things that we do and I can see that work every day. We're
1: gonna step away to hear from our sponsor.
2: This episode is sponsored by betterhelp.com.
1: and we're back speaking with Aparo Rice, the CEO of Tanager Place. Let's talk about some controversy for a moment, because something that you said there is we need everything. We need psychopharmacology, mm-hmm. which is, you know, medication, and we need therapy, and we need community supports, and we need we need lots of things. I, you use the, the cliche, which is one that I really like, is that it really does take a village. But like you said, the controversies are what hits the news. And one of the big ones that people talk about all the time is oh, you have a hyper child or a child who's hard to handle, let's medicate them and make it easier on the parents. What do you have to say about that from your viewpoint as, as the CEO of, of Tanager Place, who works with a lot of children who are in crisis?
2: Yeah, I, I think that that's a fallacy. I think that sometimes we think that a pill can solve everything. Psychopharmacology is just a part of treatment that usually is tied to therapy and other interventions. It's just a part of the treatment process. It is not meant for every child. It is not the most appropriate thing for every child, but there are a large segment of kids where it is. We are very lucky here. We have two psychiatrists, two psychiatric nurse practitioners, a psychologist. We have a great medical team here. And I see them and the work they do every day. Parents are not coming in saying, hey, just give me some medication. My child just needs to calm down. That is not what's happening. We don't do that type of work. We're not operating in isolation that way. You need to really f- first of all understand the diagnosis of that child, what's happening with them in school and at the home in their social interactions, and then you, you're making a treatment plan. psychopharmacology may be part of that treatment plan or it may not, or maybe for a small amount of time. The thing is that we are doing the right intervention at the right time at, and in the right doses that 's what the most critical thing, and the medical provider is there to help, but we do it in a very interdisciplinary team environment so you have the psychiatrist you have the therapist you have the caseworker all talking about with the parent this isn't locked up with the parent i think that sometimes in society we think oh yeah there's a pill for that they'll be then you know, that's fine that's not really reality and most medical providers They're not trying to do that either, um, in all fairness, too. And and psychiatrists I've known around the country and people I talk to, uh, people take that very seriously because what we know is that some of these medications are very strong. And and there are not long-term studies around how they may impact children's physical health years down the road. So people are very careful about what they prescribe.
1: It's interesting to hear your perspective on it. Opara, because you say things like psychopharmacology and interdisciplinary team and wraparound services. And that's a very medical approach. And I think that is what's happening in the field. I think that is the average way that a, a child is prescribed medication and services, etc. But it, it doesn't quite have the oomph of uh, oh, we're just medicating annoying kids. And I think that that's why that information kind of goes out there because that, that's kind of a fascinating conversation. Right. Like, hey, your 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 child is a pain. Let's give them drugs. Like that that has that hook.
2: Yeah, and I want to get the impression that it's a very medical model. I should say much more holistic model. I mean, because with the other pieces that, that we do in the part of our conversation or how we look at kids is you're looking at all the social determinants of health that the CDC put out. So you understand housing, you understand employment, you understand all the societal factors that go into what happens in that household, what happens with those adults also then happens to that child. So I'm speaking from like a a professional standpoint and using the big words or whatever, but the reality is I'm also a dad of a 13 year old and a nine year old. And when I think about if my children are having challenges, what would I want them to have? And the fact that their dad is a CEO should not matter. We want kids who whose parents are not CEOs or whose parents are single parents, whoever, to be able to get the same quality of care and that same holistic view of that child. So there's no shortcut to proper treatment. And that's what we have as a society. It's, I think I think we're starting to get there. I am hopeful we're getting there. That we see the the holisticness of what well, the child. Again, medication is not a cure-all, it's got to be part of a treatment continuum that involves therapy, that may involve physical health. And, and there's a lot of other pieces that, that go along with it. But we have to look at the child holistically. Otherwise, we're not really doing a service because children are not, they don't operate in isolation. So if you're not looking at all those pieces, you're not going to be effective. And, and, and no medication is going to be effective. And we're not trying to have kids who are zoned out, you know, walking around the, the city. That's not, that's not productive and it's not healthy.
1: There's an interesting thing that you said there where you said that the things that are happening to the adults in the household are happening to the children in the household. And I want to touch on that for a moment because adults really have this idea that Children are, you know, they're they're bulletproof from the ways of the world. They don't have mortgages and jobs and children and, and all of these things. But I think if we all reflect back, when, when mom and dad are stressed out about money, that is felt and reverberated throughout the household and absolutely impacts the children. Now, it may impact them in a different way. And in fact, I think it's reasonable to say that it absolutely impacts children in a different way. Can you sort of speak on that idea that, oh, you're just a kid, don't worry about it? and how that needs to evolve, because... uh that the kids are worried about it, but because you told them not to worry about it, that means you're not a source of support.
2: Right. And I'll say a couple of things. You know, one, first of all, anybody who's been around any type of child knows children pick up on everything. First of all, there's nothing that seems to get past them, which is remarkable. But I'm going to speak of my own experience a little bit. You know, I grew up in a household. My father was a drug addict. My mom was very clinically depressed. And I know for a fact, when I look back on my life, the effect that those two things had on me and what happened when you are wondering if you're going to have a home the next day, right? We we're homeless for a little bit. You know, what that's like, or you don't know what's happening with your next meal or when your mom can't get out of bed for two days because she doesn't have the strength to do that. You know, so I know what those things did to me or made me think about throughout my life. I mean, those are extreme and I I hope nobody has ever had to experience that. I know there are children who experience that every single day and that's the extreme. But there are smaller things, just the pressures of uh, maintaining the household, the pressures around making sure there are gifts at Christmas time. That's one of the things that in, in my role and all the roles I've had, that's always so important to me because guess what? As a parent, I know when it gets to Christmas time and, and how expensive toys are and people want to give their kids things and that stress and that pressure of trying to make that happen. But God, do you pay this bill or you go get this toy, right? You know, We try to make sure all our kids who are in our programs get some Christmas gifts or our families get, get gifts. So that's one less thing that they have to worry about. But all those pressures, of course, filter down to the child. They can feel that tension. And again, each child responds to that tension in a different way, but we have to acknowledge that tension is there. They're not, they're not oblivious. As a matter of fact, they're picking up on way more than, than you think. And sometimes it's good just to have a conversation with your child, especially if they're old enough to, to have that dialogue to make them feel reassured that, hey, things are okay. We're going to be fine. This may be tight right now, but this is what we're doing. You, know, you don't have to talk to them like an adult, but acknowledge that the tension is there. That's going to help them feel safer.
1: Let's move on to when everything goes wrong, the worst case scenario, what people unfortunately think about more often than not when they think about mental illness, and that's crisis. You said it at Tanager Place, you have inpatient and outpatient services, and that's crisis treatment. Can you talk about that a little bit, how you take somebody from crisis to wellness?
2: Yeah. I mean, well, again, it's a journey because each child is different. And so for our children in our inpatient program, they're not able to be in their home for various reasons. So we have kids who come to us who have severe depression. We have kids who may just come out of a psychiatric hospitalization. And so that journey for them is going to look different for each family is going to look a little bit different. You know, I, I don't look at it necessarily as crisis. I think that they may have had this episodic situation, right? But it's really about how do you help them avoid that situation going into the future? How do you build their resilience so they don't do any self-harm or they don't think about suicidal ideation um, or, or contemplate not being on the planet? How do you help young people do that? And there is no easy, I wish it was an easy fix, but it's not because each child responds to treatment in such different ways. And also what we learn now, not what we learn, but what we really acknowledge is that, you know what, if you're not helping the family at the same time a child may be in inpatient care, that you're really not doing quality treatment. And that is something that has absolutely moved across the country. And I think people are much more family-engaged and family-driven because we get – that child may be with us for six months, eight months. They're going to go back to that home. They're going to go back to that home community. So if we not only build the resilience factors in that child, if we don't do that in that family and in that community, then they're not going to be successful going back. And so I think that what we know, again, is moving away from that medical model, treat the child, treat the child, treat the child. To now, much more of a systematic, holistic view of that family unit, that's what makes for good treatment. And it takes time. Unfortunately, we live in a managed care environment, and and insurance sometimes dictates certain things. And each state is very different in how that's done. And so not only do we have to have a really quality inpatient program, we got to also have really quality community-based supports for that child, too. And understanding that there may be setbacks along the way. And that's part of the journey, right? Nobody one day is like, oh, boy, I'm in, you know, I'm having this episodic crisis. I'm perfectly fine. It doesn't work that way. That's not life. But we have to have things in that community where that child may not need that highest level of care, that most restrictive um, level of care.
1: How do the families respond to this? Because I I imagine that given our limited knowledge of mental health that exists in society when they knock on your door they probably believe that the issue is entirely with the child and then you're saying no 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 there's there's things that you can do as well is there pushback on that
2: oh sure i mean there's some but you know what really a lot of people when they come to our door they just want help they want help the thought of a parent uh, any parent losing their child is terrifying they just they want help like okay and I'm not saying it's, it's all pie in the sky that everybody comes is so open to this. No, that's not necessarily true. Each treatment program is different. Each treatment program is unique. Each Each family is unique. Some people are ready to engage in in that change-making process. Some people are ready to do some self-reflection. Some people are not. It just really depends. And that's where there are other programs that people can find to fit what their family may need. But for the most part, honest to God, and I mess it down with a lot of parents who are in crisis and who feel like it because they don't want to lose their child. And our job is to help give them hope that we're going to help be a part of this journey with you. And so a lot of people, that's it's just hard. It's humbling and scary. And so, again, you acknowledge that. You validate those feelings. But then you set a course of action, you set a plan together to help their child and to help their family again, if the family isn't healthy, part of that or encouraging people to to be healthy, then it's not treatment is not going to be successful long term and there are a lot of families we have who, who themselves wind up in therapy who seek additional things or who have had events in their past that have changed you know how they parent so again, if you're open and you're engaging with people, people come to you for help, and that's the most profound thing once that door is open and they're saying, hey help us, help this family, there are a lot of things that you can do. We just have to come with the right spirit or philosophy around it. It's it's not victim blaming. We don't have people say, oh, it's your fault your child is struggling. It's your fault your child has thought about committing suicide. That's not what you do. If you look at what are those factors that led to that child thinking about that, what are those stresses in that child's life that has led them to think about that? What can we do? What are those supports you can build in? How can we build in supports for that parent as well? That, that Even hearing that about your child is, is traumatic. So those are things that, that we do.
1: That's the final thing that I want to touch on, Opara. So many people believe that mental illness only exists in children that have bad parents more often than not, bad mothers, or come from broken homes, or... There's just a lot of, like you said, victim blaming, that the child would be fine if it wasn't for their awful family. We know that that's not true.
2: Oh, absolutely. Let's just be straight. Children's mental health challenges cover every socioeconomic spectrum. I don't care. We have kids who come who are seen in our outpatient clinic and in our inpatient programs whose families are extremely wealthy, whose families are extremely poor, whose families are middle class it covers every gambit. So we have to put that out. We have to just say, that's just a myth. And you know what? Even families that are very, very poor, they want the best care for their child too. That's the other myth that we have in society, which is a whole different conversation too. Being poor doesn't mean you don't care about your kids. So everybody's trying to get the best care they can. They just have limited resources they can turn to to get that care. That's where wealth gives you that that opportunity. But better believe it, Wealthy, poor, middle class—everybody has the same level of mental health struggles.
1: That is excellent, Opara. Oh, thank you so much. What's the website for Tanager Place if people want to check it out across the country?
2: You got it. www.tanagerplace.org.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate your time and for enlightening us on all of these subjects. You're just—you're just awesome.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, You're very welcome. And hey, everybody, do you want to interact with me on Facebook? Suggest topics, comment on the show, and be the first to get updates? You can by joining our super secret Facebook group, which I've now said publicly, at psychcentral.com slash FB show. Have any topics but don't have Facebook? There's got to be one out there. Email show at psychcentral.com and tell us what you think. And don't forget to review our show on whatever podcast player you found us on. Tell a friend. Thank you so much, we will see everybody next week.
0: You've been listening to the Psych Central podcast. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, psychcentral.com offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health personality psychotherapy and more please visit us today at psychcentral.com if you have feedback about the show please email show at psychcentral.com thank you for listening and please share widely
1: There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away. And then having to pretend that everything is okay, despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD.